Hello, and welcome to this week's Business Transformation 101 podcast. I'm your host, Bill Fegis. In last week's podcast, we provided an overview of product life cycles and a typical new product development or NPD process. This week, we're going to do a deeper dive on one well-designed NPD process called New Product Blueprinting. This process was developed by Dan Adams and his team at the AIM Institute. Founded in 2005, the AIM Institute is more than a product development training company. They pioneered the idea that B2B companies can far outpace consumer goods companies when it comes to understanding customer needs. Then by relentlessly working year after year with thousands of professionals from the world's top B2B companies, they fine-tuned a suite of tools, methods, and skills. Now entire organizations can become masters of B2B customer insight. Dan Adams is the founder and president of the AIM Institute and author of New Product Blueprinting, the handbook for B2B organic growth. In over 35 years working within and with Fortune 500 corporations, he has explored all aspects of B2B innovation, including new product blueprinting from the ground up. He is a chemical engineer and holder of many patents and innovation awards, including a listing in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. I have worked with Dan and the AIM Institute team for over six years. The AIM Institute was a key partner in training the leadership teams of multiple operating companies on the new product blueprinting process. In today's podcast, Dan will provide us with an overview of the key aspects of the new product blueprinting process. Dan, welcome to the Business Transformation 101 podcast series, and thank you for taking the time to share with us your insights and expertise on new product blueprinting. Bill, it's great to be with you again. Thanks for having me over. Great. So, Dan, could you start today's podcast by providing some insight on why you developed the new product blueprinting process? And we'll uh, move you on to your first slide here. So yeah, we'll, we'll start with yeah, we'll start with a little bit of history here, Bill. You know, you and I have been around for a little while, and after <laughs> after a bit, you see these patterns, right? There's like these waves of things that business feels like they must do. And I, I remember back in the '70s, I was in production, and we heard of this guy named Deming who was telling people that they should be doing quality circles, and you know, that was what we call the quality wave. And some of your listeners may remember this, but in, in the middle of the 20th century, he came to American business leaders and said, hey, listen, guys, you really need to stop having inspectors at the end of your line. You need to do this thing called, uh, you know, statistical process control. Of course, business leaders, you know how it goes, Bill. They ignored him, right? And so, at least in America. So, he went over to Japan post-World War II, found this little company called Toyota. They did listen to him. And, you know, it's really amazing between uh, 1960 and 1980, the Japanese car production went from 3% to like 30%. And so the, the thing that was impressed upon me, and I think you as well, Bill, was that, you know, it makes a difference if you're at the, at the forefront or lagging in one of these waves. You know, it really makes a difference. And we saw that with productivity, right, with companies doing business process reengineering and lean. And now we're in the innovation wave, 100 books being written per week, which evidently means we haven't figured it out yet. But that's the passion I have, <laughs> and I know you do from some of the companies you've led in the past, Bill, and, and that is, 
right. you know, we can even have a greater impact here because when you're back on quality and productivity, marvelous as those are, you're working on your current operations. You get to a point of diminishing returns, right? So right. what do you do when you, you know, you've, you've got a, the factory being run, you know, with, with only one person, it's so automated, right? Or, or your quality is like zero defects, you know? But with the innovation wave, there's no limit. And that's what has me quite excited, frankly, about what we could be doing in this area. So that's what kind of got me going, Bill. Okay. And then I think also, you know, I think we've got a slide on this. Companies are doing a bad job, right? And, and you and I have talked about this. I think the next slide, it, it mentions the fact that, gosh, there's a, not a lot of success. This is from Cooper, Bob Cooper, father of Stagegate. He said that once companies do their front end work and they start measuring from the development stage, they have like a 25% success rate, which is terrible, you know? Pretty ugly. And I think maybe on the next slide, yeah, no. <laughs> and we keep doing it year after year and wonder why nothing's getting better. And, um, you know, if we think about manufacturing, well, here we have three defects per million attempts. And over here in innovation, three defects for <clears throat> four attempts. And so I know that that was something on your mind. How right. can we get this better? And it's something certainly on my mind as well. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that kind of sets the background on this whole thing. And so I've thought about this a lot. And as you know, we do a lot of workshops. And this is a slide I usually pull out fairly early in the workshop. And I ask the group, I say, does your company have bright R&D people? And people usually nod. Even the marketing people, Bill, even they say, yes, we have bright R&D people, right? <laughs> Surprising. Right. And then I say, well, do, do, your, do your competitors have bright R&D people? And they go, oh, yeah, they do. And then how are we going to win becomes a question. And I know you've been here before, Bill, and I've seen this in a lot of companies. But you're sitting there. Maybe our listeners can, can relate to this. You're sitting there. You're getting ready to put your operating plan together for next year. You're looking at a market that's growing at, call it 3%, right? And you have to put together a plan and show your boss how fast you're going to grow. So I asked workshop participants. Are you going to promise the boss 3%? Are you going to promise them less than or more than? And they go, well, we're going to tell our boss we're going to go faster than the market, you know, 5% or 8%. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, what do you think your competitors are doing at the same darn meetings they're having, right? <laughs> they're going to go faster. So all the suppliers serving the same market are going to go faster than the market. As Dr. Phil would say, how's that been working for you? <laughs> so that's that's a dilemma we face. Okay. So I guess you could I guess you could think of it as really two problems, right? I mean, there's the problem one, what does the market want? What's the right question? And then there's problem two, you know, what's the right answer? What's our solution? And and don't you find that most companies bill spend most of their time on problem two? Yes. You know, they want to rush in the lab, don't Definitely. they? <laughs> Definitely on the back. Yeah, end. yeah, let's Yeah, exactly. And I, I think there's some even some research that shows that on average companies are spending about 90% of their typical new product development effort on the solution. And the same research says that they could bump that problem one expenditure from 10% up to 20 or 30% 
they'd be a lot more successful. So we have an underinvestment problem, but <laughs> I think the next slide shows us we have even another problem. It even gets a little bit worse than this. And, and it, it comes from our stage gate processes. And I love stage gate processes. In fact, you know, Bob Cooper developed them. You had yes, it, right, in a company, and they served you yeah. well. Yeah. And, um, in fact, now we're working with Bob Cooper's company, StageGate International, and, and there's some really cool things you can do with a good StageGate process. But what we find is a lot of them have idea generation way over on the left. And if you ask the company, whose idea was that? Was it your idea as a supplier or was it your customer's idea? 90% of the time they say, well, that was our idea. Oh, okay. So let me see if I got this right. You're starting with your idea, then you're going to validate it and develop it. And then tell me, sir or ma'am, when is it you're really going to investigate market needs? And you know how it goes, Bill. They dance a little bit and they hem and haw a little bit. And then they finally say, well, I guess we understand market needs when we launch our product. We see if anybody buys the darn thing. So we say, okay, wait a minute. You're starting with your idea and your the solution and you're ending with the market needs. Does that seem backwards? Does that seem wrong? You right. think we ought to maybe reverse these? And that's really where we go with this next slide and our process. It's really one where you start with, uh, with, with um, it's, yeah, I guess it kind of shows it here. This is what they're doing. Sorry, I, I grouped you up on that, but for most companies start with their solution to an assumed need, and then they wait to see if the thing sells, and we're going to flip those two. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that well, that think, really is where we are at, yeah. Yeah, but, I think the other thing, Dan, too, to some extent, you know, you mentioned the stage gate process, good process, but like any process or, you know, any computer program, you know, garbage in, garbage out, and to some extent, I think, you know, what you're pointing out is, hey, un unless you have a real good concept of the customer needs and you're substituting yeah. your needs, then it doesn't matter how good your stage gate process is. What comes out the end, other end isn't going to work. Um, exactly. So. Yeah. It's what you feed in that front end. In fact, your, your point spot on bill, because I was talking to the, uh, to this, one of the owners of, of the uh, stage gate international today. And he was saying the number one thing is you need a good, strong value proposition. And in B2B, right. you really you should develop that in the front end. So this is our, our take on it. You got these guys in medieval armor there with the uh, catapult <laughs> saying, you're going to love our next product, whoosh, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we look wall, at it, we go, that's, right? yeah, exactly. Customers are ducking because they don't know what is coming at them next. And, you know, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, um, we call it an awkward reality. In fact, I have these right. weekly blogs where I come up with a new one and, you know, someday it's going to change, but that's where we're at today. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, one of the things we mentioned is that, right, this is targeted at B2B as opposed to B2C. And, and I think on this next slide, if you could just give us a little thought on why, you know, the process is different and better suited to B2B than B2C. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. You know, at the AIM Institute, we only focus on B2B. People kind of think, well, why do you do that? You know, is it is that like a marketing technique or something? And our answer is no. When it comes to the front end, there's so much you can do in B2B that you cannot do in B2C. So let's imagine you've got a B2B, two belt producers. 
Now, one's producing conveyor belting, clearly a B2B product. The other's producing a dress belt, clearly B2C. So when we think about the customers we would interview, we're the supplier, we're gonna go and interview these folks. Now, let's think about an interview with an engineer, mechanical engineer about their conveyor belting. First of all, knowledge. You know, uh, that engineer has got all kinds of years on the job, uh, you know, years of education. Um, maybe they're thinking about this stuff a lot. Now we go and we talk to the end consumer. And I don't know about you, but I, I can barely remember my belt size. Of course, it keeps changing too. But, you know, I don't know much of anything about my belt. My knowledge is very low. And so the knowledge is higher. So the B2B customer can help me. Uh, the conveyor belting customer can help me design a better product. They can say, hey, damn, I need better abrasion resistance. I need higher throughput. I need more you know, volume on this thing. By the way, we're getting some slippage in wet weather. They can tell me all kinds of stuff that I didn't know about their world. How about interest? Well, I can make that engineer a hero at work if I can help them increase their throughput and improve productivity. How interested is the end consumer about their belt? Well, you're going to have to pay them to come to a focus group. That's how interested. How about objectivity? You know, right there. See, it's pretty stark, isn't it? So, you know, the B2B customer, they have to follow company procedures or being held accountable. Multiple people make the decisions. Consumers are fickle and, and notoriously irrational. That's why we've got all these storage places all around the right. countryside where we stick our stuff that we can't. We can't fit in our houses anymore, you know? And then, then you got foresight. Now, I'm not saying the B2B customer can tell us how to design what a better belt should look like. However, they can tell us they want, you know, better throughput. They can tell us they want to reduce their labor costs. They can tell us they want to reduce their maintenance costs. I mean, they can tell us the end results they want because they're in business to make money. Not so much with the end consumer about their, about their dress belt. And finally... There's not as many belt customers in the conveying belt area. So I can reach them and I can have conversations with them and I can influence them and, and engage with them wherever I have millions of consumer belts. So, so the thing I think about sometimes is, you know, I, I can have intelligent conversations in the front end of innovation that will absolutely guide my new product development effort in B2B. But what if I'm in B2C? What if I'm making a new video game and I go to consumers and go, what do you want in a video game? They're going to say, well, let me play with the game. I'll tell you if it's fun. Hey, what do you want in new snack food? Well, let me taste. I'll see if it's good. Hey, what do you want in a new men's suit or dress belt? Well, let me try it on. So what's happened is the, the, all the high-paid marketing people in consumer goods, Procter & Gamble and Apple and all these you know glorious, high-glory situations, they've taught us that you – have to go and do prototypes and study them and do two-way mirrors and stuff. Well, shoot, in B2B, you don't do that. You go in the front end, you do intelligent conversations and interviews, and you have everything you need to basically eliminate your commercial risk. That's where we're at with B2B. Okay. Yeah, and I think, you know, my, my background is primarily B2B, and I think as you've pointed out before, so... In some cases, we literally, for a product, might only have, I mean, the whole universe might be 10 customers. So if we can go talk to the yeah. top two or three of them, we're going to get pretty good G2 on, on what the requirements exactly. are. Exactly. So. 
Yeah, you, you could you could be talking to fifty percent of the market's buying power with two or three or four right. interviews. That's huge. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for the background on that. Let's um, let's get into a little more of the details of the new product blueprinting process going forward here, Dan. Yeah, you bet. So this looks complicated, but it's really not. Everything in color is part of the blueprinting process. Okay. And the main thing is really to think about those interviews, discovery and preference. And we'll explore those in a little more detail, but essentially discovery interviews are qualitative interviews. You might go out and do five, six, seven of those in a market segment, and you're going to be diverging. What else do you want, Mr. Customer, getting their outcomes or their desired end results? Then you're going to go back usually to the same customers and do quantitative preference interviews. So instead of diverging, now you're going to converge on those outcomes they really want, something that's important to them that they're not getting today. So we're going to focus on customer outcomes or desired end results. And then later in technical brainstorming and, of course, in product development, when you're going to lab and push back the frontiers of modern science, we're going to, that's when we're going to be in solution space and then eventually launch the product to glory and honor for all involved. But basically, right. the blueprinting process is the front end. And by the way, most of our clients today, they just do the interviews and put together a brief market case. And they only go all the way to that business case. But it's a really big project. So it's not like a lot of work to get this done. Right. I, th I think another key thing on the, the uh, discovery interviews and preference interviews that, that um, I think I took away from this, Dan, was... These are not sales calls. These right. are getting the right people from your team, the marketing, the uh, technical people. And you're in there, as the name say, says, discovering things, not selling things. So I think the audience needs to, to make sure as they do this, that that's kind of a key differentiator and can provide some challenges in getting in there and getting a conversation with a customer. Well, you're exactly right, because some customers are used to us only coming when we're going to sell at them. And they sometimes right. are in disbelief when we say, no, we really want to come and listen. And sometimes what we do is, as you know, Bill, is we explain it this way. We say, hey, listen, you know, we used to go and back in our deep recesses in our laboratory and cook up stuff you, we thought you wanted. And then we'd bring it out and our customers would yawn. So we thought, hey, why don't we figure out what our customers want before we develop it? And once they kind of get that, they go, yeah, why, not, why aren't all of our suppliers doing it? It seems kind of obvious. So that's the right. overview. And then there's a little more detail I think we've got on what, what's, a, what's a discovery interview look like and what's a preference right. interview look like and what are these crazy outcomes we're talking about. And, and so back to that example of the uh, conveyor belting, if we were in discovery interview, we might hear, Increase abrasion resistance, reduce maintenance costs, faster operating speed. And, and as you know, Bill, it drives me nuts when I hear people say, well, customers can't tell you what they want. Well, right. I agree they can't tell you how to make a better conveyor belt, but that's not their job. You know, they could absolutely tell you these things if you know how to sit there and listen and probe and so forth. And the reason, here's why I think these outcomes are so important. I've thought about this a lot, but I don't think we create value for in our laboratories or in our factories. I think we only create customer value when we find some outcome that's important, that's not good enough, and we make it better. Now, 
It could be at our direct customers. It could be at our customers' customers. It could be in our customers' product, or it could be in our customers' process. But unless and until we find some outcomes that that are good enough, we make them better, I don't think we're creating any customer value. So that's kind of the first principle. And the second principle is, I think the only path to profitable, sustainable growth is really creating customer value. So that's where we, that's where we get all these outcomes. And we say, how do we, how do we really get at these outcomes and understand them in great depth? So <laughs> the analogy we use is, imagine a microbiologist, he, he or she's got their microscope, they put a specimen under and they just start cranking up the magnification tighter and tighter. Well, that's what we're doing with blueprinting. First, we'll go into discovery interviews, get all their outcomes, why they're relevant, define them, then go into preference interviews. And we just keep tightening down on these outcomes. The entire blueprinting process really is about customers' outcomes and knowing them in far, far better detail than our competitors can even approach. And that's really what the advantage is in the front end. (laughs) So that's, that's it get those customer outcomes. And so there's a lot of things we do differently. We stay away from from consumer research with one-way mirrors and tape recorders. And as you know, Bill, we like to digitally project our notes. So in the pre-pandemic days, (laughs) your guys would go, they'd visit a customer, they'd get a little projector going, and then they would display the notes they were taking from what the customer was saying so the customer could I say, oh, you're getting that wrong, or oh, add this, and the customer feels like what they're saying is being treated with respect. And then we'll we'll make sure we work on customer outcomes, not as you were saying, not selling, you know, uh, and and we would go down the value chain to customers, customers. Sometimes, if it's a big enough project, we'll do side by side competitive testing. We'll make sure we're being driven by market data. And we'll look at that in a little bit. That's the preference interviews. And the last thing is kind of interesting. When people come to our workshops and go, great. So you're going to help me develop a list of brilliant customer questions, right? Nope. Nope. We're not going to do that. What we are going to do is we're going to teach you how to brilliantly probe whatever the customer wants to talk about. And the customer actually leads the interviews. So those are some of the differences we have. Okay. Then I think we've got, yeah. So people want to know, well, what's a discovery interview look like? So if you were the customer, either today with a web co- with the pandemic, it would be a web conference. You'd be looking at something like this and your supplier would be saying, tell me about the kind of problems you have. First, they'd start with current state. Tell me a little bit about your business and your global footprint. Just a couple of real quick questions. Then tell me the kind of problems you're having. Now, if you were a pain producer, like note number one, you might say, well, you know, our, our homeowner customers are complaining about cleaning food stains. And then your, your supplier would probe on that. Really? What kind of food stains? Yeah. Okay. Then after that, the, the supplier would say, well, what other problems? Well, you know, some of these paints are picking up dirt really easily. Oh, tell me more about that. And they probe. And so the note takers taking these notes after you run out, of, after you run out of problems, the supplier would say, what's your ideal world look like? And they You'd give them some more outcomes and they'd trigger some more. At the very end, the customer supplier would say, well, if everything we talked about, what are the five to 10 outcomes that you would call top picks, your 
your most important ones you'd like to see somebody work on. So now we've diverged. And you might go out and do six, eight, whatever discovery interviews with customers in this target market segment. And then you come back for the next one, which is the preference interview. And uh, it's a little bit of internal work before you get to this. But what you would do is you would, uh, well, yeah, this is what it looks like. So we can't actually see the video here, but if your folks have some questions, they can see this, I think on our website, but that's the moderator there. That's the lady third from the left, she's a moderator. She's asking questions and then it goes to sticky notes. There's a note taker taking notes. And today we're doing it by web conference. Okay, so it works out pretty smoothly. Then after all the discovery, that's when we go to the next one, which is the preference interviews. And on this one, let's imagine you, you process all of that data from seven discovery interviews. And one of the things that kept coming up was they want to get rid of these food stains from painted services. So you say, how sad, how, how important is it on a scale of one to 10? You get a score. And you say, how satisfied are you today on a scale of one to 10? And you get a score. And what we're hoping to find are some outcomes that score high in importance and low in current satisfaction. That's really where we're going with this thing. And uh, so that's, that's what the interviewing looks like, Bill. So, you know. so Dan, <laughs> how, how difficult is it to get customers or potential customers to agree to discovery and preference interviews? And then, you know, in today's Zoom world, has that become easier or harder? Really interesting. So for the first part of your question, what we've learned is we need to kind of put ourselves in their shoes. So, you know, one of the things we'll say sometimes is, hey, we're doing industry research into this industry. And for those who participate, we're going to be sharing some industry research with them. And that's a very strong inducement. Now, you're never going to say, hey, your competitor said this and somebody said that, but you will scrub the entire thing and give the overall high-level results. And you won't give them all either because usually you don't want to get make sure you're, you don't want your competitors getting their hands on it, but you'll give them some. <clears throat> so that's one inducement. Here's another one we found very, very effective. You say to the customer, hey, listen, do you guys do open innovation here? or do you do close innovation? Now, unless they want to sound like a Neanderthal, they're going to say, <laughs> well, we, we do open innovation, man. And you say, well, that's fantastic because you know, you might find some cool innovation at uh, universities, startups, but you know what? One of your best sources of open innovation may be your own supplier base. Take us, for instance. We've got experts back in our lab who really understand this, we want to work on stuff for you. You don't have to pay us if we're not successful. There's no risk on your part. There's no commitment on your part. But here's the thing. We just need to know what he wants to work on for you. And that is also a very compelling argument. So when we do our training, as you know, Bill, we don't just train people how to do the interview once you get it. There's a lot of training on how to set it up. Now, we had to rework a little bit in 2020 because of the pandemic. And um, well, here's what we learned. we learned. We knew this part already. We knew that the gold standard is in person, right? 
You can't get any better than face-to-face, body language, personal relationships. As long as we're humans, I don't think that's ever going to change. However, we did find there's like 10 advantages of virtual VOC. Things like saving the time of airfare, saving the money of airfare, getting people from different locations at the customer on the call at the same time, easy cancellations, easier scheduling, packing in multiple per day. It's amazing the advantages there are. But then to your very good question, yeah, but do the customers want to do it? Actually, the answer is they're more willing to do this. Hmm. And I don't know if I completely understand it, but here's my analogy. If, if you're going to have a, um, a door, if you were going to have a vacuum salesman approach you, would you rather have him knock on the front door or call you on the phone? <laughs> right. I mean, it's a lot easier to hang up, right? Or maybe you, exactly right. So if I'm the customer and you say, can we do a, you know, a discovery session, it'll take an hour, an hour and a half. I'm probably going to say, yeah, okay. Because then I can say, well, guys, I got to go now if I really want to leave. Right. Now, most people want to keep it going. They actually enjoy it. But it's easier to schedule, easier to say no. They don't have to give you the bums rush and get you out to the lobby and get rid of you. So we are finding that it's actually easier for our clients. Now, the other thing that's kind of cool is if you notice, if your listeners and viewers watch these last two slides, the discovery and the preference interviews we have now are highly visual. So my caution is this. If you're going to do web conference interviewing, make it visually stimulating and interesting. You don't want to do it by phone and you don't want to make it boring. Right. So that's our, that's our advice on okay. that. So um, <laughs> thanks for the response on that, Dan. So after holding the discovery and preference interviews with the customers, and collecting some great data, hopefully. Uh, let's go in there, what kind of the next steps are then? Yeah, yeah. So this is the punchline right here. This is the reason I think every B2B company that is serious about boosting their innovation needs to do those preference interviews. When you create those, so let, there's a simple formula we came up with years ago. Let's say the average market importance uh, for a hiding power was a nine. So you can see we've got the importance of nine down there. And let's say the average market score for satisfaction was a six. And, and you, the viewers may remember, we told people what these numbers meant. So our formula is importance times 10 minus satisfaction. So we got nine times 10 minus six. So we got a 36% market satisfaction gap on hiding power. And so what we've learned over a literally thousands of these interviews and hundreds and hundreds of teams around the world is that if you get a market satisfaction gap on an outcome in excess of 30%, that is your indication the market is eager for you to work on it. If it's 40%, they're really <laughs> eager. As you know, Bill, they're 50 yeah. or 60, they're screaming, why haven't you fixed this, man? Right. You know. And so what we've noticed over the years is without this, People are working on factory mix time or brushability or something down here because they don't know. So we tell people, great, do your qualitative interviews, love it, but don't stop there until you get the hard, quantitative, unfiltered, unbiased data that is straight from the customer. Do not trust your judgment. 
confirmation bias and other things will throw you off the course. So this is the single most important thing a customer can or a supplier can do, in my view, to boost innovation, uh, efficiency, and effectiveness. Don't start doing any product development of any size without confirmation like this. So it's a pretty big deal for me. And and myself, who's uh, you know kind of a a data and facts driven guy, I really like this because it really does put some science behind it. But as you say, it's got to be based on responses from the customer, not back to you thinking what it is. Exactly. If there's any chance to filter it, we will. That's for humans. <laughs> yeah. If I went, if I went out, imagine, imagine I just did this. Imagine I just did discovery, and I've been telling my colleagues for a long time. Oh, I know they want factor better factory mix time, right? Right. Now I go out and I do seven discovery interviews. Nobody brings it up as I'm packing up my gear. As I say, is there anything else you guys want? And somebody goes, oh, maybe I don't know. Factory mix time. Oh, thank you. And now I, I create, right? I create yeah, my PowerPoint. Yeah. I show my boss what shows up in 72 point bold aerial font on my slide. Hey, factory right. mix time. The customer said it. So yeah, you're there. <laughs> okay. Next one up. So when we tie this all together, as you know, Bill, we're really trying to eliminate innovation errors. And there's two primary innovation errors. The first one is the error of omission, and that's failing to uncover an unarticulated need. That's what discovery is about. We don't want somebody going, oh man, we missed that one and a competitor found it. And the second type of error is an error of commission. That's choosing the wrong thing to work on, and this happens all the time. So that's really why we do both of these interviews. Okay. And I think maybe even, I think that shows up in the results. I mean, if you're, if you're doing a new product development, you've got technical risk and we're, we're fine with high levels of technical risk, but you wouldn't want to, you, when would you resolve technical risk? It would really be in the development stage. You wouldn't launch right. it going, I hope we can make this stuff. Right. But what about yep. commercial risk? That's the next one. And, you know, turns out that most companies resolve their commercial risk in the launch phase. And if, you're, if your listeners aren't sure about that, listen, imagine if you've ever heard this conversation. Hey, Joe, how's your new product going? I don't know, Adams, we're going to launch it next month. We'll see if anybody buys it, right? We don't really know until we launch right. it. And so what we do in this, in this slide, if you could watch it moving, that red curve, would actually move all the way over to the left. We call it a certainty time machine. So instead of waiting till the launch phase and saying, hey, I wonder what you know the commercial risk is, we're going to figure that out before. I mean, people say, can you do that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it'd be tough to do in B2C. You know, what kind of snack food do you like? But in B2B, we've learned you can almost eliminate commercial risk before you ever go into the development stage. And that's really the essence then of, of blueprinting here. Right, yeah, and I think to, to, you know, as you stated, one of the key takeaways I think for the audience here is that, you know, the more you can push the work back to the front end and get it right there, you're probably, your probability of success and your ROI is gonna be better than if you 
wait yes. till the end, like you say, and throw it out in the market and cross your fingers and, you know, maybe this works. <laughs> it's almost like a dream. If you go to most uh, chief technology officers and say, what if your entire staff while working on product development only had to worry about technical risk and did not have to worry about commercial risk? They knew that if they could hit the technical targets, they were going to have a winner. Are you kidding me? Yeah, we can do that. We really can't do it. <laughs> right. So, so you've given a great kind of 10,000-foot overview of the new product blueprinting process, Dan. Can you give us a little feel for uh, how well it's worked out in the real world? Yeah, yeah. So we did some, um, we did some research, and we had um, almost 400 of our clients respond on uh, discovery interviews. And they, between them, they had done you know, close to 2,000 interviews. So a lot of data there. And then we also took 50 teams that had gone all the way through the business case. And uh, we did some in-depth analysis of that. And they also had done you know, a little under 900 interviews. I think the next chart shows the results of the discovery interviews. And in this case, what they were telling us was that, you know, by and large, they were getting the blue means they were agreeing at some level, but they were getting a deeper understanding, more valuable. And I love this last one, unexpected. This is addressing that errors of omission, finding things they weren't getting otherwise. Now that was discovery alone. The next slide speaks to what happens when they did discovery and preference. Now, this one takes a minute to explain, but so picture this. You got 40, or I'm sorry, 50 teams. They all had some idea of what their new product should look like before they did the interviews. Then they did discovery and preference interviews. And then we ask them, okay, so did those interviews change your idea of what the product should look like? Did they impact the design? Now, 16% or one out of six said, you know, it was moderate, it was slight. They were probably on the right track. But this was mind blowing for me. Five out of 16 said, yeah, it had a great or significant impact, which I think means they would have developed a different product had they not done these interviews. So now when I talk to executives that say, well, Dan, do you think our teams are on the right track? I say, well, picture a, a six-sided die with five no's and one yes. And that's what you're rolling, Dan. <laughs> so we can do a lot better, I think, with proper interviews. Okay. Do you have one of those die you can give out? <laughs> I, I need to get one of those made. I'm going to start passing those out. <laughs> great, It's a great uh, kind of... Uh, visual <laughs> yeah so you know and you know this bill having brought us into several of your businesses but we're really trainers at heart you know if somebody you know pushes up uh, uh, us up against the wall and makes us we will go do some projects for them but that's not really our passion we're not hired guns at heart our passion is training our clients to get really really good at this so when we do our training, they're learning how to segment, how to set up interviews and conduct them. And you can, your viewers can see all the things here. There's just so much that can be done in the front end. And I think the thing that's personally very fulfilling for me is I've watched some of our clients. We've 
We've trained them. Some of them have become blue belts. Uh, we have uh, different levels of competency people can uh, aspire to and, and achieve. And it's just truly amazing what happens. And then these people, they, they make huge contributions at their companies. But then, you know, if they decide they want to go somewhere else or maybe there's a cutback, the, the skills they have are just so highly sought after to understand B2B customer needs. So that's kind of our passion is passing these skills along to people. Okay. Yeah, this is a funny one, isn't it? This probably takes some explanation, but it's yeah, kind one, of- this one is not obvious. <laughs> yeah, I used to have a professor say, now the following is intuitively obvious to the yeah. casual observer. <laughs> that wasn't this slide, was it? Well, sometimes people say, well, so is this like a stage gate process? I say, absolutely not. You need your stage gate process. But I say, if you really consider your stage gate process, it is an interface between your company and your project team. And it's really there primarily for the benefit of your company. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the company wants to make sure you don't suffer any undue, it doesn't suffer any undue liabilities. The company wants to have proper resource level. The company wants to have good portfolio analysis. The company wants to have some stages so we make sure and gates so we don't waste all of our resources. So that's why it's there. It's primarily there for the company. Now, this good stage gate process asks great questions, but nobody's trained the teams how to get the answers. So think of blueprinting as not the interface between the two bottom ones, company and project team, blueprinting comes in between project team and the customers. We're here to help you get the answers for your team so they can answer them at, at the company level. So there's a flow from top to bottom. When customers, when our client teams do a great job of interviewing, they get all these insights and that flows down into the stage gate process. And now, as you know, Bill, our blueprinter data is on the cloud so we can hook it up to our client stage gate process. And where our clients used to have what they called the fuzzy front end, like which is, I have no idea what's going on in the front end. Now right. the, front, the front end is the most crystal clear part of the process. They can go in and see how many minutes were taken per interview and what the word count was and how many job functions were interviewed and how many interviews and what the market satisfaction get. It just goes on and on. Now, this is just new. This is, this is just in its infancy. So we're not all the way there. We've got a few clients doing this. But if we look out 10, 20 years from now, my belief is the best companies out there We'll have this amazing front-end data flowing seamlessly into their stage gate. doesn't require any extra data entry. And they're going to be way ahead of the pack. They're going to be the Toyotas of the innovation wave. Okay. Yeah. So that's Great. what we see. That's where that's at today. <laughs> and the last thing, and now this is really new, um, we now have an executive dashboard. So up until the summer of 2020, Everything in the cloud was like one team at a time, but now our client executives can look at a portfolio of front-end projects. So they can see at what stage it is by color. They can look at the circles to see how many interviews done and the diamonds show them how many are scheduled and 
they can see how big the project is and when the market case will be done. And I, I can't show it all here, but they can click on these things and dive into the blueprinting projects. It's pretty powerful stuff. And then we're, we've got some functionality now where the data can flow directly into people's stage gate process. So again, it's still fairly new, but you know, it's pretty clear where it's going. And that is the fuzzy front end will not be fuzzy for B2B. Right. So that's kind of where okay. we're at today. Okay. So to, uh, to wrap this uh, podcast up, um, I really recommend utilizing a robust process like uh, new product blueprinting to build an effective new product development program in your business. This approach really will ensure your NPD team is investing in the development of the right products with winning value propositions and will drive the company's growth while realizing excellent financial returns. Dan, thanks for this overview of new product blueprinting. I appreciate you taking the time to join the podcast. If you are interested in learning more about this process, please reach out to the AIM Institute at www.theaiminstitute.com or to Dan at dan.adams at theaiminstitute.com. One final thought on new product blueprinting. Standard work is important to building and sustaining a successful business of, as we've uh, pointed out in the past. New product blueprinting provides a proven out of the box standard work solution to get your NPD team up and running quickly and effectively without having to reinvent the wheel. The team can utilize this solution and through continuous improvement Kaizans tailor it as appropriate to the specific needs and requirements of your business. This slide shows uh, some references specifically uh, at the AIM Institute website that provided inf additional information for anyone who wants to dig in a little more. In the interest of continuous improvement, I invite feedback from our listeners. Please share your thoughts and ideas on these weekly podcasts and feel free to suggest topics which you believe would provide useful information for you and our listeners. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast and please join us for next week's podcast when we will be having an in-depth look at the rapid innovation process for new product development with Phil Samuel of the Lean Methods Group. Dan, once again, great to see you and thanks again for joining us. Thanks for uh, having me over, Bill. I really enjoyed this time with you. Thanks. <laughs>